It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. The idea for what became Outdoor Research was likely conceived of by unkempt mountaineers in a stinky, damp, uncomfortable snow cave in the Alaska Range. But since those days of yore, OR has become an apparel company also dedicated to breezier, sunnier, more, shall we say, aromatic outdoor pursuits like spending a fun day at the crag. With that in mind, the runout invites you to check out OR's cragging collection. Shorts, pants, hoodies, jackets, and more for movement and protection on the rock when the day might involve some gobies and a bit of rain and snow, but is more likely to end up around a campfire or at a local watering hole than over a sputtering stove in a whiteout. So find everything you need for a day at the crag or that soul-scrubbing alpine route at OutdoorResearch.com or use their handy shop locator to find your local retailer. Outdoor Research is a proud sponsor of The Runout. Rumor has it Randy Levitt first spotted Clark Mountain from an airplane. To be more specific, he saw an impressively long shadow being cast by a cliff and surmised that there'd be overhanging rock yonder way. Worth exploring? Hell yeah. Sure enough, the ever-prolific Levitt would go on to develop the climbing on Clark Mountain, which is situated at the California-Nevada border, high over the desolate Mojave Preserve. It's a haul just to get to the parking lot. Grueling 90-minute hike ensues to reach the goods up high on the so-called third tier. But the reward is arguably the most impressive piece of limestone in North America. A bone-white shield tilted 50 degrees overhanging and soaring impossibly toward the sky. The most famous route here is Chris Sharma's Jumbo Love, America's first 15B and one of North America's hardest climbs. To its left is its little sibling, Jumbo Pumping Hate, a 14A that Levitt had originally completed as a four-pitch line. If you could believe the photographs of Levitt on this route, that's in America? Holy shit. One of those climbers was Bill Ramsey. He saw those photos of Jumbo Pumping Hate and put that climb right on his bucket list. Fast forward a couple decades to this past spring, when Bill, 11 days after turning 59 years old, clipped the chains on Jumbo Pumping Hate with his own successful ascent. Days later, he was in the OR to get hip surgery, routine maintenance for a 59-year-old bone crusher. Ramsey is a philosophy professor, longtime climber, and prolific route developer. He's timeless in all the right ways. Conversation with him never gets old, and he never seems to get old. One of the most impressive stats about him is that he's climbed 25 of his 26 514s after turning 40 years old. This is Andrew Bisharat, and I'm here with Chris Kaluse. We thought Ramsey's recent send would be a good excuse to check in with our favorite climbing philosopher, this Socrates of send. But first, I wanted to share a passage Ramsey wrote for my website, Evening Sends. He wrote a piece for the Day I Send series about doing Golden, a 14B in Utah. You should check it out because of all the Day I Send stories I've run on my site, this was the only one that needed not a single edit. It came in perfect. He describes a moment here in climbing that's really available to all of us. And it's probably a moment I imagine that he experienced that day up on Clark Mountain. It goes like this. All extended athletic careers are punctuated by moments that Kant and later Gumbrecht characterized as instances of the sublime. 
They are the rarest of times when luck, skill, and some degree of gumption combine to create what is best described as a fleeting but undeniable moment of grace. Some professional athletes can conjure several of these in their career, and that's why they are superstars. But even for us rank amateurs, there are rare instances when it all clicks and body and mind enter a state of communion that transcends our normal mediocrity. Good shit. So without further ado, enjoy what I hope is at least an above mediocre conversation with Bill Ramsey. All right. So uh, I was out in Rifle yesterday and I saw this svelte fit hot little body pushing a stroller with a baby in it and i was like who is that and i was like oh it's chris Calouse." and uh it sounds like you've been working out chris so why don't you tell our listeners about your new regime well ironically because we've got bill ramsey on the show um a notorious notorious training fiend um i also have started training for real which um is a new thing for me I've been uh, working with uh, Chris Hampton at, at Power Company Climbing to actually do a, you know, set up, go to the gym, do a set of exercises type training regimen. And, you know, I don't know if it's paying off because right now I'm just really tired because I've been doing it a lot. And uh, But it's been working out good because I can go to the gym for a couple hours instead of having to go climbing. I never would have thought that I'd have so much fun just going to the gym, but here I am. So... And thanks for the compliments. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, and thanks to Bill Ramsey for being here today. Yeah. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Um, we invited you onto the show today because uh, you recently sent a hard route out at Clark Mountain. And as Chris and I were talking about how to, you know, what kind of themes we could talk about on this in this discussion, we, we came up with this really evil idea of just plain dumb and pretending that we had thought that you had sent uh, jumbo love i like um, that can you print that then, up please and and then the the inevitable crestfallen uh disappointment upon realizing that it, it wasn't jumbo love it was it's neighboring <laughs> jumbo pumping heat uh which is still a very worthy and impressive ascent nonetheless but not, not the hardest route in the country unfortunately no yeah <laughs> but but arguably as aesthetically impressive as jumbo love so why don't you tell us about this route yeah so this is a route that uh, randy levitt did actually as a four pitch climb back in the mid 90s when he was developing this whole area um it's pretty impressive all the work he put into clark mountain and uh it sits right next to jumbo love which is notorious and uh generally considered the hardest climb in north america or at least in america and uh i saw pictures of it 20 years ago or so, uh, Randy on it. And I just said to myself, oh, my God, that is a beautiful, beautiful climb. I need to climb that. Then I got involved. I moved out to Las Vegas. I got involved in other sorts of things, but I always wanted to go up. And I went up to Clark about, I think, around 2015 just to check it out. And um, I did that hike, and I was kind of like, ah, maybe I don't really need to climb this thing after all. <laughs> you know, this hike is pretty horrendous. But uh, I started going back up, and I started working it pretty seriously, uh, about a, a, a about uh, a year before last spring, when Jonathan Segris was working Jumbo Love, and I was going up with him and some other people, and uh, started kind of getting it together, and uh, was getting it down to one hang. But there were since uh, Randy did it, 
uh, a key hold broke off on what was at that time the second pitch, and it made it quite a bit harder. Now, where you can sort of move through a given section on pretty big holds, you now had to do a huge dyno. And it was that dyno that was more or less shutting me down. And then if you made it through the dyno, you would still have to do this other um, original crux on the on the pitch. And it was originally rated 13D. So I'd been making progress on it, but I was still not consistently getting through the dyno. And uh, and and even if I would make it through the dyno, the you know, one in 50 times I'd make it through the dyno, I would often then fall on the next crux. So it's a real beast. I tried it pretty hard last spring, got close, tried it last fall, and was trying it pretty hard this spring. Was, again, making some progress, had a, sort of some low points, several one-hangs, um, but really didn't expect to do it, quite frankly. If you'd asked me the day I went up there what my odds were doing it, I'd say probably 10% or 20%. But I made it through the dyno and uh, felt pretty good, and uh, then um, was able to recover. It's kind of funny, the rest between the two cruxes, the way you rest is you have to use this heel hook, a sort of a lotus position heel hook. It's kind of inside heel hook, and you just kind of hang off that heel. And, and it's on the left leg, and that's the one that's been giving me problems with my hip. So it's, it's the, it was the, it's, the ab, it's sort of comical. It's like the absolute worst position to be in with regard to my hip. It was just absolutely excruciating. But I got to that, I got to that rest, and I'm like, well, you know, do you want to do the climb or don't you? So I just kind of gutted it out at the rest there, and... Um, Spent quite a bit of time there trying to get everything back and managed to do so and then got through the next crux and made it to the top. I was pretty shocked, frankly. But it's a stunning route. It's on this gigantic wall that everybody's seen pictures of. Um, the, the angle's about 50, somewhere between 50 and 45 degrees. And um, I couldn't get all the way down with an 80-meter rope. It's really long. You're combining the first two pitches of what Randy did. Yeah, it's 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 an absolutely stunning, beautiful route, and um, I'm glad I fought through and actually did it. Um, and so, just to put this in context, uh, and I'm, I'm just going to spray for you on your behalf, Bill, for a second. But please do. Yeah. So this is a 514A, and you know maybe not the biggest grade these days, but considering that you are 59 years young, um, I'd say that's an impressive ascent. Um, and then I saw some articles about you about this, you know, after having sent this route and one of the, just some of the facts that popped out at me were that you've done 26 514s, but all but one of them you sent after you were 40. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And 614Bs. And 614Bs. Um, yeah. it, it, well into your 50s, two of them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, golden, golden, and uh, reverse polarity. So, how does this route rank among all those those twenty six five fourteens in terms of what it means to you? Well, it, any route that I have to suffer through several seasons to try to get up means a lot to me. Um, and you know, anytime you put that much effort into something as a big project, um, it, you're going to walk away feeling pretty good about it if you finally do it. Uh, it's certainly not the hardest route I've ever done. Um, no doubt, the fourteen Bs were harder. But, you know, hardness is relative compared to, you know, depending on your situation and how old you are and things like that. So in terms of the amount of effort I had to put into it, it's it's right up there among the hardest ones I've done. And frankly, I mean, just getting up to that wall is no joke. Exactly. Even the hike in its, uh, itself is a, you know, 512 hike. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a nice reciprocity there. I'm sure that the problem I was having with my hip made the hike quite a bit worse. But of course, the hike probably made the situation with my hip quite a bit worse. <laughs> so there's sort of this reverse causality going on back and back and forth. And frankly, uh, with the hip problem, I, I could get up there okay, 
And I could, it seemed like I could climb okay with the exception of things like these heel hooks. But then getting down was a real, real problem. So I always had that to look forward to at the end of the day. I'd be really <laughs> stiff and sore from climbing all day. And you have then to crawl just, down. And you just, basically, there are a couple of times where I think I kind of was feeling like I needed to crawl down. I would, I'd go for a ways. I was using trekking poles. And I could go, usually I get, I could make it down to the first tier and then the pain would really start to kick in. And a lot of, a lot of times I just have to, I go for a hundred yards and kind of sit, sit and breathe through the pain. And then I'd feel pretty good for another five minutes and then have to sit down for a while. So my partners had to be patient. I'd always give them the keys so they could get in the car and get the beer while they were waiting for me. Um, but, uh, it, 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 that hike probably did is one of the reasons why I needed the surgery, frankly. So, how, how many times do you think you did it, Bill? That hike? Well, yeah. I was probably going up uh, two or three days a week when I was really trying for a couple months for each season. So, you know, a, quite a bit. and Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite a lot. And, th- and then I'd find the next day I would really have a hard time getting around. So, I, I, I could almost never climb up there two days in a row. That was That was unheard of. And frankly, I was trying to climb up there with two days of rest in between each day up there. Cause those are just huge days up there. You know, these are big routes. They take a lot out of you. And then the hike up and down is also involved as well. So, um, I feel pretty wrecked for a couple of days after spending a day up there. Yeah. Because it's, it's not by no means a, uh, like a, what would be considered a sport climbing approach in this day and age at it's, all. I mean, it, it's a it's, couple it's, thousand feet elevation gain. And I, I mean, mileage yeah. doesn't matter because you're all over the place, but a couple thousand feet elevation game, you're scrambling, you're using ropes in certain yeah. sections, you're hand over handing up cliffs. There's sections where if you slip or anything goes wrong, you're going to be dead. So you need to pay attention. There's cactus everywhere. There's rattlesnakes. It seems like the rock everywhere you're going is super sharp. So, I mean, it's a rough environment. It's the Mojave Desert. But that's also why I think it's such a special, really uniquely, ruggedly beautiful place as well. And then you have this crazy, crazy solar farm below you. I'm sure all of us climbing up there a bunch have retinal damage now from occasionally glancing down. You'd be climbing up there in the shade. And when you're climbing in the shade, you still have a shadow because of this solar farm reflection coming up, coming up into the, up into the, up into the cave. It's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty well because that's appeared since I last climbed there. Yeah. Um, was quite a while ago. And, and um, I don't know, have the roads improved because of the solar farm? No, the roads have probably gotten worse. Um, okay. Because the main area where the roads are bad are quite a ways past the solar farm. Right, right, right. And, uh, yeah, you need, a, you need a really beefy vehicle to get up there. More than one flat tire situation, which is not fun up there. So, uh, Bill, one thing that I just want to sort of um, make clear to our listeners is you're really part of the uh, first generation of sport climbers in America and I guess really the world and in, in, in that level in that sense as well. You were cohorts with Alan Watts when Smith Rock was being developed. And so you've kind of seen this thing called sport climbing from the get-go all the way to where we are today. And I guess one of the things that kind of jumps out at me is you know, I, I try to imagine what that must have been like for you and, you know, seeing these guys who you, you must have considered to be, you know, gods climbing this thing called 514 in the 80s and just maybe how inhuman and surreal that seemed. And then to, you know, go on into a later phase of life and achieve that level yourself was was that a tough mental transition? And maybe you could talk us through 
that moment, maybe when you first realized that 514 was something that would be possible for you? Yeah, it, it was kind of crazy. I um, I have kind of an odd climbing career. I'm sort of like John Travolta. I have two careers, basically, and my second career is better than my first. So, yeah, <laughs> Alan and I, um, we were best friends in high school, and his dad used to climb with my dad at Smith. A lot of the ridges and a lot of the climbs out of Smith, uh, my dad named and did the first ascents of a lot of the pinnacles out there. So I grew up with climbing, and then Alan got into it a little bit ahead of me, and then he talked me into it. So we started getting into it and climbing when we were in high school around 1976. And uh, at that time, you know, we were following kind of the traditional ethics. We were climbing cracks. We were sort of working our way up through the grade. But there really wasn't a, an established anti-bolting ethic or anything like that at Smith uh, because, of course, there were face climbs that existed already while we were getting into climbing. Uh, but generally, I, Alan and I were mostly committed to crack climbing. At that time, California completely dominated the climbing scene. Um, everybody thinks there was this old rivalry between Smith and California, but really, at least in the late 70s and early 80s, I remember the first time Alan and I went to Yosemite, we, uh, we didn't even think we should stay in Camp 4 because we weren't good enough. We weren't hard men enough. You know, we'd stayed in one of the Rivers campground, but we, we did you know, get permission from the, front, <laughs> from the front gate to walk through Camp 4, and we thought, okay, this is awesome. Is that Ron Calc over there? So, I mean, we had a lot of reverence for those people, but then I went to college with Alan. Alan left college about a sophomore year. This is probably around 1980, and just devoted himself 100% to climbing, and I would occasionally go over, and about that time, he was just working through everything, and eventually he got to a point where there really wasn't too much left for him to climb, and that's when he started rappelling down these, what we thought were blank faces, and finding holes, and that's what kind of changed the history of rock climbing, uh, in North America at least. Everybody thinks the Euros came over and brought their ethic over, but that really wasn't it. It was more out of necessity for Alan, having sort of climbed everything out and looking for new things to do. So... Yeah, I then focused more on academics. I went to graduate school in the mid-80s. I heard about all these things. I would occasionally come back. I belayed Alan once when he was working on the East Face. And I felt like, yeah, uh, the sport has really taken off. The things that people are doing now, these new grades, these 513 grades, and people are climbing these 514s, uh, it, it was pretty mind-boggling. And I was really impressed. And I was watching it all, though, from sort of afar. I you know, stayed, kept my magazine subscriptions, but it was all happening while I was finishing up my dissertation. And then I wound up picking my first job at Notre Dame. And, you know, there's no climbing in the Midwest. I figured, well, that's it for my climbing career. But I really started to miss it. I really missed the community. I really missed the challenge. It was really bugging me. And I did take then a climbing trip, I think around 91 or 92. And I met Porter Gerard at the New River Gorge. And he told me, he was developing this area in Kentucky, and I was skeptical. I'd never heard of climbing in Kentucky. And then sometime around 93 or 4, I took a trip down there. I saw the walls at the Red River Gorge for the first time, and that's what changed everything for me. So I, I started getting back into climbing. I bought a house where I could build a climbing gym and I could train. I started doing the seven-hour drive. Initially, it was once a month, and it was twice a month, and then I found myself doing it every single weekend. And then I also realized I didn't need to spend my summers in South Bend because I was, you know, I wasn't teaching during the summer. So that's when I started returning to Smith Rock and um, getting on some of these climbs that were these newer routes, these sport routes. And I just got completely sucked all the way back into climbing as a lifestyle. And I started working through the grades. My initial goal was to just climb a 513. I just thought, wow, if I could climb a 13A, that would be really amazing. And I managed to do that, 
pretty pretty quickly around uh, the mid '90s, and then I kind of just worked through everything. And uh, I, I I was climbing at Smith in the Agro Gully, and I'd done all the routes that, that had kind of worked up through there, and the only thing left were the 514. So I started working Badman one summer, then I came back and I and in uh, that's the one I did before turning 40. In uh, in '99, I did that uh, that summer. I did it in July, I think. I did Badman. So that's when I realized that a these these routes that are amazing are actually possible. I can do them. And B, just how much I really love returning to the community and, and being a part of the climbing scene and everything like that. I'd like to just go through some quick questions, just, I think, kind of geeky trainee stuff that I think our listeners might be interested in. But you, sure. you have this reputation as as being this notorious trainer. And, and you know, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but uh, certainly a part of your climbing. Um, if you had to summarize your philosophy towards training, what, what would it be? Uh, more is more. There seems to be an attitude out there right now that is, that is um, less is more. Um, train less, train smarter, don't train more. Uh, that's just never really worked for me. Um, and, you know, if somebody's been doing it a lot, I've always found that the people who put in the hard work are the ones who are rewarded. So I recognize where a lot of the trainers are coming from now who are sort of trying to be as smart as possible about training. But... Like one thing I'd like to do is just have really big days, just huge training days where I go for 10, 11, 12 hours and then take two or three days off. Um, a lot of people say, well, that doesn't make sense. You should be doing smaller sessions spread out. But as you get older, it takes so much longer to recover. And then the other advantage is, you know, I'm still going pretty hard at the cliff at four o'clock in the evening, whereas I notice a lot of my friends will climb for three or four hours and then they're done because their body just doesn't, isn't used to those kind of big climbing days. So I guess if there's a general philosophy that that distinguishes my outlook, it's more is more. Not only does that have the advantage of being necessarily true as opposed to necessarily false um, when people say less is more, but I actually think it is a it is what I think sets apart the really top climbers quite often. They're 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 working a lot harder at it. Uh, is that your philosophy, Chris? With uh, yeah, the power, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah more is more, and. Uh, more time away from my child is better and (laughs) all those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you bring that up because you know, it, it it really, um, this whole thing is kind of new to me, but, uh, the whole idea is actually trying to just focus my energy and, and, and be useful when I'm at the gym instead of like faffing around. And and that's kind of like, uh, I guess that's a little bit of a more is more idea as well, instead of just, partner around i actually have something i need to do and get done while i'm there yeah and i find that it's just it takes me so long to warm up and get ready to go that once i put all that energy into warming up i might just go ahead and have a big have a day devoted to training and then it takes me kind of a while to warm up when i'm doing my work so i just happen to have a unique schedule where i can do these big days training big days working as opposed to what I think most people try to do is, well, I'll spend a couple hours training four days a week or something along those lines. And those will also be work days. It just seems to work better for me to have days devoted to one thing. So. Has is injury uh, been a problem for you? And I, I think that the more is more philosophy just kind of seems like it would in- inevitably lead to injury. But not for me. I have had no issues. This This hip surgery is the first any kind of surgery I've had with regard to injury. I find I don't get injured by virtue of being tired. I get injured if I don't take enough rest days. I get injured if I try to string too many days in a row. And I mostly get injured if I don't warm up properly. 
But, you know, I'd, if I'd been training for 10 or 11 hours, and I mean, I, granted, this is somebody who's been doing this for a long time, so my body's kind of used to it. I always feel like that's when I'm the least, I mean, I, I fail, I can't do the moves on a given boulder problem or on a route, so I fail, but I don't feel like I'm vulnerable to being injured in that situation as long as I'm taking adequate rest days between those big days. And um, hangboarding, you do, I, I know that you like to hangboard after like a climbing day or something. Is that when you're like tired and just kind of worked, is that, do you go to the hangboard? Is that how you finish yourself off? Sometimes, uh, sometimes I would hangboard before going up to Clark. I mean, my, the problem is when you're doing a big project is you get what I call project atrophy, where you just get weaker. You get stronger maybe on the particular holds, but overall your body gets weaker when you're doing a big project. And so you want to try to forestall that as much as possible. So I, I'm a big believer in training, at least in initial phases and pretty far along into the project enterprise. You want to keep that training going on. If you can, ideally, it's good to do it at the end of the climbing day. But I was actually doing a light fingerboard workout before going up there, at least for a good chunk of the time, because even though you might be slightly diminished in the long run, it's going to pay off because uh, you're going to be stronger as you start getting really close. And then as you start getting really close, you cut the training out and you just feel really strong, kind of get you over the hump. Is your diet something that you think a lot about? I don't think a lot about it, but I definitely drop weight when I'm getting close on a project. And that's part of my strategy. And again, that's kind of a dirty secret that no one ever wants to talk about, that people succeed in climbing by dropping weight. But it's something that's normal in a lot of sports. I'm not talking about, you know, becoming anorexic or bulimic, but I'm talking about I probably, to get up jumbo pumping hay, dropped about three, four pounds um, to get up. And it just, I didn't feel weak. I didn't feel like it was any um, problem. Uh, I felt actually really great. So, How do you lose weight? Eat I mean, less. three pounds is basically like taking a dump. Yeah, eat less. Um, <laughs> it's really pretty damn simple. The formula, we understand it. Burn more calories, eat less. And just make sure that what you're putting in your body is really, really high-quality fuel when you're eating so much less. I mean, I'd usually, at the cliff, try to make most of my food calories come from liquid. So I'd have sports drinks and, um, like, meal replacement, um, carb drinks. What and, about vodka? Uh, is that part of your diet? Only to get down the hill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what get me down the hill sometimes, a little shot here and there. But, uh, yeah, no, I just believe that, uh, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with monitoring your weight and paying attention to it. We're, we're in a sport that's got, that is, is dependent upon how heavy you are. And uh, I think this is probably true of a lot of the top athletes, a lot of the type climbers, when they get close on something, they want to go over the, get over the hump, they just drop a few pounds, then put it right back on. I'm probably 10 pounds heavier now than when I did that thing. So that's how it works. So what's your prognosis now that you've had this hip surgery? Do you expect a full recovery or are we going to see more 514? What's going on? I don't know, 514. I mean, I think my, <laughs> this coming year, I really kind of want to enjoy climbing a little bit more. So maybe just some quick ticks of some easier 513s. Uh, I do expect to make a full recovery. I've already started training again. I'm fingerboarding now. And uh, like I said, I'm going to try to probably go to the climbing gym later this week. But, uh, you know, when you've, when you've done a huge project that's really sucked a lot out of your soul, you then want to kind of enjoy climbing in a more sort of quick hit kind of way. So that's probably what I'll devote this next year to. Uh, I should be trying to climb hard stuff again, hopefully by this fall, uh, certainly by this winter at the VRG. 
Um, and there's some routes up there I want to still do. So that's that's kind of the agenda. And hopefully I'll be back out in rifle next summer. I'd, I guess I'd be remiss not to highlight that you are a philosophy professor and a philosopher. And you've written some wonderful pieces about climbing philosophy and climbing in general. Uh, one of your most notorious pieces was a, a sort of defense of chipping. Um, I don't know if that's an accurate way to describe the article, but... No, it sure um, was. Yeah. So, um, and and that's certainly in the news right now. I don't know if you've seen some of the discussion yeah. going on around Ten Sleep. Up at Ten Sleep, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, I mean, part of what motivated that article is... It seemed to me there's a little bit of hypocrisy going on where people were climbing these really hard routes and then denouncing certain other climbs or certain other climbing areas as being manufactured in various ways. And for those of us who have climbed hard routes, we know that the vast majority of them have some kind of manufacturing on them. That's just this dirty secret that uh, people didn't want to expose. And I thought, you know, it's really unfair. Developing one of these routes, it's a tremendous amount of work. It's quite often quite a bit of expense. It takes a lot of time and energy. And uh, to just denigrate some of these climbs in a way that struck me as involving a complete double standard uh, is really unfair to the people who put all that energy and hard work into putting up these climbs. So I just want to say, well, let's just, let's just cut the crap here and uh, be honest about what's really going on. And recognize that there's a lot of rock modification that goes on when people are developing new routes. And quite often, that modification involves the creation of a hold. Now, that doesn't mean anything goes, right? And I suspect that maybe some of the problems at Ten Sleep are there perhaps some cliffs where people adopted the anything goes attitude. I think deciding when it's appropriate and how to do it and how much to do it, that requires a, that's a judgment call. And the mere fact that it's a judgment call itself suggests that there can be good judgment calls and bad judgment calls. So there's no hard and fast rules about this. The thing that I think matters is if it's a judgment call, quite often the people who have more experience are going to make the better judgments. And so a lot of this development, I suspect, it's good to have it when, where, you're, where you're paying attention to what's gone on in the past, paying attention to the local ethic, asking other people, talking to other people, just communicating with the climbing community. But realistically, the truth of the matter is there are very few routes harder than, say, 13C or 13D. There are very few routes in the country or anywhere that don't involve some kind of hold modification that's deliberate. Do you think that it's a a judgment call or is it an aesthetic issue? Well, that's part of a judgment call. You're You're going to take into consideration a lot of different factors. There's no question that a purely natural route and the one that has comfortable holds and is and is pleasant to climb on is more desirable than a hold that has some manufacturing. Manufacturing does indeed take away from a climb. But um, when it's done properly, when it's not overly obvious, um, when it's using what the rock naturally provides and you sort of try to use what the rock is giving you, and you know, especially when you're looking at limestone, how much rock modification goes on, how much loose rock has to come off, how much chiseling is taking place just to get rid of all the choss, uh, you know, I think in those sorts of situations, when it does, when it's done properly, that's how we get a lot of the great routes in the country. So uh, my attitude is, you know, we want to be honest about this. We don't want to pretend that all these routes are 100% natural. But at the same time, it's smart that the, the better people who do who know how to do it properly are doing it in a way where 
there's plausible deniability when you're climbing on it. You, you can sort of suspend disbelief and like, oh, this, this, I think this is a natural hold, maybe, you know. Right. Um, and so I think that's when it's done properly. Is there anything about climbing's direction right now that concerns you? I think climbing is developing in a completely natural way that uh, I think, it, you know, it's interesting is we've always said 30 years ago that, you know, we're going to be blown away by what people are doing 30 years from now. And so we really shouldn't be surprised, but we are still completely blown away. I'm blown away by what people like Adam and the people at the top level are doing. I think it's amazing. I think it's awesome. Um, I think it's great that it's one of the most, I believe, gender-friendly sports. Um, It's one of the few sports where women are performing um, at a level that's pretty damn close to the top men. Uh, maybe not quite exactly there, but, th- you know, the, many of the top climbers that are famous are women climbers, which I think is awesome. The thing that concerns me is the thing that concerns all of us is just as it grows in popularity, the sheer numbers of people at the crag are, is going up. Um, you know, when you go out to Smith on a busy weekend now or you go to the Red, it just it's mind-boggling how many people are into rock climbing now. And that's only going to continue... And grow, you know, with the popularity of free solo and the Don Wall climbing going into the Olympics. We're going to have to figure out how to how to deal with all of these crowds. It's great that people are getting into climbing. It's great that people are enjoying the outdoors. But at the same time, it's hard on these often fragile natural areas. Uh, I think more people should get involved in um, access issues, work with the Access Fund. I'm the vice president of the Southern Nevada Climbers Coalition. I think people should get involved with their local coalitions. And, you know, try to figure out ways to improve the trails, deal with the access, to do as much as possible to minimize the impact that the sheer number of climbers is having on the natural resources that we have to deal with. You know, with the popularity of climbing and and all the things that are going on at the top, and also, Bill, you've been around a while and climbing through, you know, several shifts in ethics in terms of what it means to climb a route, you know, a red point, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, all the different sort of truthiness of, of an ascent. Does it concern you at all that, that you know, if there are questions of veracity of, of someone's climb, of how they did it, if they're being honest about the approach and, and whether it got done in the proper way at all? Or, is it, or are you kind of a, you know, live and let live sort of character? No, I think that it's always been the case that, in climbing more than most boats, because we don't have independent referees or judges, it's very, very, very important that you be as honest as possible about what you've done. And any kind of fudging or any kind of leaving out details, I think, is wrongheaded. And when you get caught doing that, it undermines your credibility. And all we have is our credibility in climbing. So I actually think it's really, really important, more, than so, more so than in most sports, that people be as honest as possible. And it gets tricky. And I think this has always been the case. It goes all the way back in the 50s and mountaineering and things. But it's, it's always been the case. But it's getting more and more the case that because so many climbers are depending upon social media, getting a lot of followers. So many climbers are trying to be professional climbers now and their status um, depends upon how many people are following them and supporting them and giving them likes and things like that, that there's a temptation to fudge things a little bit and maybe not be 100% honest in terms of what you've done. I don't really feel like that's the case with regard to sport climbing. I tend to think that people, it's pretty 
uh, black and white, whether you red point the route or not. My hunch is it's a little bit more of an issue when it comes to multi-pitch climbs, really hard multi-pitch climbs, you know, the exact style that something like that was done in. Um, I suspect that it's that's a little bit of a gray area where I'm not sure the standards have settled in. Um, you know, if it counts, if you wrapped in and finished it a certain way as opposed to doing it ground up or how many falls you can take and if you pull the gear on the fault. I think that's still getting sorted out, my sense is. But in the, the bottom line is that it's really critical precisely because the only thing people have to go on is your word. It's really critical for all climbers at all levels to be as honest as they can about what they've actually done. I do see that with social media as well, you get the whole call-out culture too, where there's shaming that goes on and attacks that go on. I mean, climbing is probably not as bad as other areas, but it is interesting to me that you know, people ask, well, what's the changes you're seeing? And one of them is the nature of the media now in climbing. I mean, before there were the two climbing magazines and that was it, or maybe three climbing magazines. But now they're just Twitter and Facebook and podcasts and online blogs and things like that. Just so many mechanisms for um, reporting what's happening and what's going on. I feel like it's, it's to some degree changed the sport. I suspect sometimes things are done not because that's the, the obvious natural objective, but rather because, oh, this will make a great infomercial or this will make a great little movie or this will make a great, you know, online thing. And so I do wonder about that sometimes, where insofar as climbing has become commercialized and um, big companies like North Face are sort of looking for stories that are actually going to be a good good story for producing and promoting their product. And sometimes I wonder if things are being done for, with that in mind as the prime objective as opposed to, well, there's this really hard mountain that needs to be climbed or something along those lines. I think that the answer is definitely that's the <laughs> the thought process that goes into some of those expeditions. Yeah. yeah. Um, the did you see the news about uh, Ten Sleep that they removed a bunch of roots and they put like red padlocks on the first bolts of roots that are going to be chopped and they filled I, in a bunch of the chipped holds. I did see that. I read something that Louis posted where he basically said. He's trying to come to an understanding uh, with the uh, people who did this, and he's going to let that stand, and they're not going to go rebolt them. I, I'm not sure that's the best option. I'm not sure that's the best strategy to, to support. I mean, basically, here's what I always said. Anytime you're taking out a hammer, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you know, anytime you're using the hammer to make a statement, you should probably just be quiet. I mean, I don't know all the details of that whole situation, there are controversial routes that are done anywhere, and oftentimes the controversy doesn't go away if people remove the bolts or fill in the holes. It just enhances it and creates greater controversy. So The, the thing that's bugging me about this is that it just seems uh, one-sided and specific to Louie when I, I I've never climbed there but I from what I understand and talking to you know a lot of people there's many people who have been chipping roots at harder levels at 10 sleep mm-hmm. um, but Louie is doing it on five tens and so he's getting kind of called out and and the photos to you know in their defense it's really blatant uh drilled pockets it goes back to that aesthetic thing that we kind of alluded to where right. you can get away with it if you if, if it's you know if you're not clear the deception's there you're not sure if it's natural or not but he's doing it in, in a blatant way so he's he's getting a lot of this uh 
ire, but th- there's something unfair about this in in my mind. I think that's what's bu- bugging me about it is that there's c- clearly other people who are chipping roots, chipping holds, and and they're not really receiving the the brunt of the wrath. And um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've said this before. I think on another show, but it, it's it's my experience that a lot of times the basis of these um, attacks on each other's roots, it's personal. You know, they, there's some personal beef with the 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 first ascensionists or between the two people that you know is kind of couched in this like ethical movement. But in the end, you know, somebody just doesn't like somebody else, and right. and so they're they're finding excuses as to why they're going to like take care of these roots. But, you know, there's no doubt that there's some personal beef going on up there that, that is not on the surface. Yeah. I think that's probably, and then there's some debate about whose guidebook is going to be the guidebook that's going to sure. nominate. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be surprised too, if maybe some people are concerned that the reason why he's chipping these easier routes is for commercial gain that, uh, you know, these are going to be the routes that are going to be used for a climbing ranch or something like that, or it's going to be the kind of routes that, people will be able to guide on. I don't know if that's some of the background I would need to look into a little bit more. So but this is not, this controversy is nothing new. I haven't, I yeah. haven't had a chance to read Jeff's moots book, uh, but I listened to Chris's interview with him and it, I, I just ordered it. And uh, you know, this is the kind of, to some degree, this has been around for a long time. The kind of crap that Alan had to deal with when he was in Yosemite and trying to climb things. Uh, a lot of times it is just personal. People just, I just don't like this person. So back to jumbo pumping hate, I saw in an interview that you called that a bucket list route. What else is on your bucket list? And yeah. how do you plan to spend your sixth decade on the planet? Oh, good question. There's always some things out there that are in the back of my mind that I'd like to try to get up. Um, for now, it's going to be really small buckets, um, easier buckets to <laughs> to, to get into. Um, things are a little bit easier and they're not going to take as much effort. I think if I do get anything hard again... I, I, I would I uh, I would prefer the routes that don't have stopper sections like really hard crux sections that are more really more resistance routes. I did that route in rifle homunculus a few years ago, and I think that's exactly the kind of route that I that I enjoy where you can get a little higher uh, on each effort, where it's just pure resistance the whole way. So I think I'm going to be seeking that out a little bit more. But uh, yeah, I just hope to keep at it, uh, keep trying hard. Keep you're not going to do um, like Everest or something crazy like that. I think I'll hold off on Everest. Um, I don't have the patience, <laughs> frankly. I'm tired of waiting in lines even at the grocery store. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid I just fall asleep up there waiting, waiting, waiting. <laughs> so, nope, just keep at it and keep having as much fun as I can. All right, Bill. Well, you um, remain a true inspiration to me and to Thanks. Chris as well. And so, thank you so much. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. Being that guy who's out there crushing and, and having a good time doing it. Great. Yeah, and we'll, and, and we'll miss you in Colorado this summer, Bill. Yeah, there's a chance I might try to make it out this fall. Um, maybe just to fly fish, but uh, maybe get, get out to rifle a little bit. I'll let you guys know if I come out there. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, guys. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, thanks Bill. Bill. If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast, or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com.